Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. After several fits and starts, we are indeed in ACC Preview Week. John Mitchell is back with me here this week as well, so we've got a lot of fun talk in store with you. Uh... Really looking forward to diving into this ACC preview finally since it's been about three weeks that we've been promising it to you and we've just had too many news stories blasting. But we're coming up quick on the the front end of the 2020 season and it's time to talk about that. So before we get into it, how are you doing this week, John? I'm doing well. Excited to get into this preview. And like you said, we've been promising it for a few weeks, but you know, we were a few weeks ago, not even sure there would be an ACC. So, you know, at least right now, it looks like things are going to go forward with students returning to campus all over the country. Yeah, you know, it's something that's definitely fresh on my mind. Uh, we're just returning at Penn State this week, one of the schools in the Big Ten that won't be playing fall sports. And, you know, just watching all of the things that have gone down around the rest of the country, including at two schools playing ACC football this fall, Notre Dame and North Carolina, you know, they brought students back to campus and and cases escalated quickly in terms of, you know, just having spikes around campus in the transmission of COVID-19. And I think it's, you know, right now as we're sitting, the ACC is playing football this fall how long that happens is more campuses are going back to remote only delivery for their instruction really becomes a big question. You know, we've talked about it in the past, but can you really create a bubble in college football? No, I mean, you know, not especially can't with students on campus. uh, But, you know, uh, we've seen, you know, the NFL is doing pretty well, it would seem, with their COVID testing protocols and everything, but that's a whole different, you know, ball game. So uh, it, it's definitely a lot more challenging to, to bubble 100 student athletes plus all the support staff and all that than it would be for what the NBA has been able to do and whatnot. And, you know, baseball has been an interesting test case because they've been able to keep going, but they've had several major COVID outbreaks already this season we've seen it with the cardinals we've seen it with the marlins and so on and so forth so it's you know it's interesting if a breakout like that happens on a particular team in college football what that'll do for the sport at large yeah it's something we'll definitely be keeping our eyes on as we get closer and closer to the season and as things actually kick off if if indeed they do um But with that said, you know, things are kicking off kind of as expected. We've had the coaches poll come out at the beginning of August. We just had the AP Top 25 come out. And I think what's interesting about both these polls, John, is that the coaches and the media members were both told to vote as though the Big Ten, the Mountain West, the... Pac-12 and the MAC were all playing football this year. And so that makes for some interesting votes in these polls because uh, in both polls, for instance, Ohio State was voted number two, and they automatically are going to fall from number two to out of the poll entirely 
because once football starts, you know, coaches and media members have been told to vote as expected. Do you think it was logical of these two major polls to include teams that they knew weren't going to be playing football? Not really, but the whole, um, all of preseason polls is kind of illogical if you think about it, because there's been no games played, so who's to say who is what? The only real reason for it is to, you know, have a number by a name for week one games and whatnot. So, you know, not really. I, I do wonder what happens in terms of a spring season, though. Do those polls get, you know, added together? Do we kind of play the fall season, award the, you know, college football playoff title and wait through the spring to award the AP and coaches titles? Or what's going to happen as it pertains to that? That's kind of what I'm interested in, kind of see what goes on. Because, you know, if there's nothing, if there's no pole championships in the fall or in the spring, I guess you're talking about strictly conference championships and you'll have several claims, I assume. But I don't know. It's certainly uh, um, new ground we are approaching. That's a good way to put it. It is definitely new ground. Uh, We've talked about it in the past, but, you know, when the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic was making its impact on college football and shortening seasons and leading, you know, the precursor to the Big 12 to cancel its season entirely, uh, interesting in light of what's actually happening in college football now and how those you know, demographics have shifted. But aside from, you know, that rant, I think it's just interesting in that polls didn't exist at the time. You know, the AP poll didn't come online until 1936 as a permanent fixture, as we talked about in last week's podcast. And so this really is unprecedented in that regard and how we end up counting these teams and and who gets to count and You know, we talk about it, and teams like Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin, Oregon, they're all going to drop out of the poll after week one, obviously. But if those polls do indeed carry over to the spring, do they create a new poll? Do they create a, you know, do they just start slotting in teams and reorganizing it week by week as the spring schedule plays out? And we see teams like, you know, even... If there is a college football playoff, do we see some of those teams drop down those polls even afterward? Because, you know, relative observation says that Team X is better than Team Y. I think it's something we need to keep an eye on, and and I haven't really, you know, I I think there's a lot of variables. It, It all depends on how they decide to carry forward. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly going to be interesting. And, you know, uh, another interesting aspect of this season, um, too, is the fact that the NCAA is granting, you know, everyone an extra year of eligibility at this point. So this season practically doesn't count in terms of your eligibility if you don't want it to. So that can also have an impact on potentially some players who decided to opt out this year to try to maintain that year of eligibility rolling into the 2021. I wonder if we're going to have any instances of people who have opt out who decide, you know, after a couple of weeks, maybe even after a couple of games, that things are they think things are going better than they thought. Maybe they join the fray again. Like, you know, I use another baseball example. Nick Markakis for the Braves opted out of the MLB season. A weekend of the season, he opted back in because he wanted to play. So, I mean, there, you could have little things like that that happen and have major impacts on the season, particularly 
when you look at some of the stars who have opted out of the 2020 season. It's so fluid right now, and that's really the thing to keep in mind here as we head into the fall is things could change at the drop of, of a dime. It, it's really crazy how quickly new information comes in. Obviously, that's the whole reason we're doing the ACC preview almost a month after we originally expected to do it. But getting back to the ACC, before we get into individual teams, I just want to look at these polls a little bit further because the coaches poll had four teams ranked from the ACC in their top 25. The AP only had three in their top 25, but... When you eliminate the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and even, you know, Mountain West teams like Air Force and Boise State that receive some votes, you see a lot of these teams ramp up. Teams like Louisville, teams like Miami, teams like Virginia, and even Virginia Tech start to get a lot more respect with a lot smaller field. And I think that's going to be interesting as well, because this is... More than anything, if indeed they just stick to the fall season for these polls, this is going to be the smallest field that they've ever had to select from. Only 76 teams at this moment are playing college football. Is it 76 or 74? It's right around there. So basically one-third of all teams will be ranked at any given time. We've never seen that you know, that many teams by a percentage of the total field ranked at any one time. So as we saw with these preseason polls, when you take out teams that won't be playing in the fall, the ACC benefits a lot. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's several ACC teams who were, you know, in the others receiving votes category of the AP poll, and we'll get that nice little boost after. They could even get the boost after losing their first game the season you know you we could see a team that starts out 0-1 unranked and jumps into the top 25 for losing oh yeah it's definitely a possibility so yeah you know the ACC starts play on September 10th what we would originally call week two thereafter Labor Day weekend with a Thursday night game UAB at Miami and then you know that Saturday you have games like Clemson, Wake Forest, Duke, Notre Dame, Syracuse, North Carolina. You know, nothing where you would expect a underdog to fall necessarily, but, you know, it could benefit the ACC to even see, I don't know, like Syracuse pull a one-point upset on North Carolina, because I imagine both those teams would remain ranked at that point. Yeah, definitely. Well, with that, you know, I I, I think we've kind of gleaned over the initial look at the ACC, how they could benefit from the polls, and subsequently, you know, from their inclusion in the college football playoff, because as we've seen, the selection committee looks like they're indeed going to be putting their moves forward on that. But, you know, we have a lot to talk about in terms of these individual teams so what we're going to be doing everybody is after this break we're going to be having three segments for you we're going to be breaking down basically based on the 2019 ACC final records we'll be looking at the five teams that finished at the bottom of the conference in our second segment we'll be looking at sort of those the middle ground that you know 
the reg the mean, if you will call it, in segment three. And then in our last segment, we'll be looking at those front runners, the teams we really expect to have a major impact both within the conference and in what amounts to a national discussion this year. Any last thoughts you want to uh, throw out there before we head to break, John? No, you know, just a excited to, to finally hopefully get to watch some football in a couple of weeks. We're really approaching what would have been the beginning of the college football season already, so it's a little a little sad that we've uh, got a few week delay, but hopefully we'll get to see some games. Definitely. We'll be right back with you all. Grab yourself a drink, stretch out, and we'll be right back to talk ACC previews. Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're here talking ACC football this week, and we've got a lot to talk about because this is a 15-team conference this year. So with the odd number of teams, we're going to be breaking this into three segments of five teams each, break down some of the stories about each of these teams, and move on from there. Based on how things shook out in 2019 for the conference. So that leaves us with the first team to discuss is Georgia Tech. Now they didn't finish absolute bottom in terms of conference record, but they were three and nine in 2019. They finished two and six in conference play. And this was a team that, you know, they've obviously have a rebuilding effort in front of them given the fact that they're switching away from Paul Johnson's triple option offense. So, you know, they bring back more talent than just about anybody in college football this year. So they should be a really fascinating team to watch, John. But, you know, given where they sit in this year two of that transition away from the triple option, I, I don't know how much they can actually compete and maybe look at a bowl game this year. What are your thoughts on Georgia Tech? Yeah, I mean, they're still right in the beginning stages of a massive rebuilding effort with a roster overhaul coming from a triple option to more of a, you know, standard offense nowadays. So, yeah, I, I think that Jeff Collins should be commended for the fact that Georgia Tech didn't finish last last year because I don't know of any anybody outside of Atlanta, at least, who picked Georgia Tech to finish anywhere but dead last in the ACC. Like, they were the team that we talked about last year. It'd be a surprise if they were even able to win an ACC game, and they were able to win two. Uh, so, you know, I, I think things were a little bit better than a lot of people expected in year one, but there's still a long, long road ahead for Georgia Tech. But if you look at the stuff, you know, on the exterior of the program, you look at recruiting, that's going pretty well for Collins. They're going to probably rely on a decent number of underclassmen again this season from a really talented recruiting class that they were able to pull in last year. Uh, but, you know, offensively, it's still obviously a work in progress. It was one of the worst offenses in college football last year. They were 127th in total offense, which, you know, was to be expected. But defensively, it was a little more disappointing than I think they would have hoped. They were 
pretty rough defensively last season as well. Like you said, they return a ton of production, particularly on that side of the ball, you know, led by uh, senior linebacker David Curry, who's the team's leading tackler and should be one of the better players in the ACC on that side of the ball. So I think another big thing they've got to fix is field position. They really struggled in terms of where they started and where their opponents started. They were 118th in starting offensive field position, 126th in defensive field position. So their kick coverage and their kick return really has to get better this year to give their offense um, a better opportunity uh, to get some points on the board and give their defense a better opportunity to keep points off the board. So I think that's a point of emphasis for Collins this year, and that's something that can be fixed that really has nothing to do with the transitions on offense. You know, I think that's something we really need to keep in mind as well, is this was a team that struggled to put points on the board, yes, but it was also a defense that struggled to keep teams from putting points on the board. And with the second most experienced defense coming back in all of FBS football, I I think they do have that opportunity to make real strides. We look at preseason SP plus, for instance, and their defensive numbers on that side, you know, on that side of the ball have them 35th in the country. And that's out of 130 all team, you know, FBS teams factored in. So they do have a real shot to, to take that next leap there. It's going to be really interesting, though, you know, as you said, it, they're still in the beginning stages of this rebuild. And I think another thing that's going to be really interesting is, one of the, you know, their non-conference game this year is against UCF. And the Knights are going to be, you know, guns out trying to make a real statement to put themselves into you know, college football playoff discussion in a year where the field is a lot smaller. So this might be the one year where a group of five team could make that noise if they make that kind of statement. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Well, on that note, let's move on to the team that, you know, finished with an even worse conference record, but managed to win all of its, uh, or most of its non-conference games. That's the Wolfpack of NC State. They were 1-7 in in conference play last year, uh, won four games overall. You know, they return a lot of talent as well this year, especially on the offensive side of the ball. But I think it'll be interesting to see how they all adjust to new offensive coordinator Tim Beck. You know, will he be able to get more out of that returning talent than the 22 points they were able to score last year? Because they were able to move the football fine. They just could not do themselves any favors when they got into scoring position. Yeah, I mean, they were 110th in the country in finishing drives last season. Uh, so it was a big struggle. I, I, You know, a lot of people, it was expected that NC State would take a bit of a step back last season with a really young roster. It's still a pretty young roster this year. They're really pointing towards the 2021 and even 2022 seasons uh, before NC State could be back and really competing for you know, at least a division title in the ACC. Um, but the Wolfpack, it, what's interesting is I think Dave Doreen might be the coach who benefited the most from everything that's kind of happened this offseason because under under normal circumstances, Doreen could be on the hot seat coming into this year. I think it would be difficult to justify firing a perfectly okay coach with everything going on with the pandemic because it's such a challenge that these coaches are facing, but under a normal year, you know, another sub 500 season might've been it 
for Doreen. So I, he's, you know, not thankful to have to deal with a pandemic, but his seat's a lot cooler, I think, because of it than it would have been. So, you know, a big thing North Carolina State's got to also get figured out this year is turnovers. Um, in adjusted turnover margin last year, they were they were dead last in the country uh, based on what they were projected versus their actual. So, you know, they've got to get that under control. A lot of that's going to start with whoever's a quarterback for the Wolfpack this year. Um, sophomore Devin Leary looked to be the guy coming out, coming into the season. So he's got to take care of the football and, you know, they've got to limit fumbles and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of returning talent in Raleigh this year, but a lot of it's still really young. So it's hard for me to see NC State. I don't think they'll finish in the absolute cellar this year, but I think it's going to be a challenge for them to take too big of a leap up the standings. You know, I think that's fair. And I think this shift to a conference-heavy schedule does a team like NC State very few favors. They, you know, last year, as I mentioned, they went 3-1 and one in non-conference play. And that was a big reason why they were able to finish, you know, 4-8 and eight, rather than, you know, you know, they finished 1-7 and seven in conference play. They wanted a 125 win percentage. But they finished 333 because of non-conference play. You go to only one conference game, or one non-conference game, rather, and that puts a real wrench in this. So I think you have to, you know, give the coaching staff a little leeway. Also, this is one of the three teams that has Liberty on the schedule. And, you know, we'd be remiss not to talk about this because Virginia Tech and Syracuse also have them on the schedule. So let's just get this out of the way now. The ACC has been reviewing whether or not teams should be playing Liberty given the, you know, the ACC's uniform coronavirus testing protocols and the fact that Let's face it, the Flames have been lax as hell around their treatment of the coronavirus, just as they were last spring when, you know, they were bringing students back after spring break and whatnot. So that's not just a football program issue for Liberty University, and it's going to be really interesting what the ACC ultimately decides. I'm, you know, I'm trying to see if, they've actually decided on this uh, yet, but, you know, it looks like as of now they're going to keep all three of these games, Um, but the ACC has been concerned. The conference itself is looking into this. Those three teams are starting to look into, you know, what kind of ability they have to get out of this paycheck game because that could be what throws a wrench in their testing protocols in the whole ability of a conference to you know we talk about bubbles and basically what these conferences are doing by going to either conference only play or conference heavy play as the ACC is is they're basically trying to create a bubble around the conference where they can at least lock down uniform procedures between the member institutions. And so, you know, if they lose a game against a team like Liberty where they would be heavily favored, it, it, it could throw even more of a wrench into their game. But we'll just leave it at that for now because we're moving on to the next team that will be possibly be playing Liberty, that's Syracuse. 
they also, like Georgia Tech, finished 2-6 and six in conference play last year. Ended up going 5-7 and seven overall, again, because they got to play a good non-conference schedule. So, again, Syracuse is an interesting, you know, dilemma on how we think about the ACC. A couple of years ago, they were the toast of the town. They had Eric Dungy a couple of years ago. They had a huge, you know, run within ACC play. And last year, obviously, they were expected to kind of fall off a bit. And this year, they could fall off even further. They um, Among the 130 FBS teams, they're 106th in returning production. And this is from a team that gave away two and a half more points than they scored last year. So, you know, I, Syracuse lost a lot of talent at their skill positions on offense. They have quarterback Tommy DeVito back after he transferred over, but, you know, will he improve in year two as a starter without a lot of that talent he'd been working with? I don't think so personally, but how do you feel about the orange, Sean? I think it all comes down to offensive line play up front. You know, DeVito, I think, was actually pretty decent last year as a first-year starter, despite the fact that he had very little time to throw. There was no quarterback um, in the Power Five who was sacked more times per game than DeVito last season. So that was a huge step down from the Syracuse we saw in 2018 that won 10 games coming into 2019 with a new quarterback and just unable to protect him. So it, it really, to me, all comes down to whether a an offensive line that returns three starters from last year is going to be breaking in two new guys if they can take that step forward and protect their quarterback. Because I think DeVito has a lot of talent. They lost some guys at the skill position, but I think um, junior wide receiver Taj Harris is a guy that could really take a big step forward even after they lost Tristan Jackson last year. It also helps Cuse that they've got arguably the best kicker in the country, so they should be able to you know, get on the right side of the 50, and they'll be able to have a lot of opportunities uh, to score. So I think Syracuse will actually take a little bit of a step forward this year, even with what they've got to replace. Uh, but I, they're still going to be right around there, I think, competing to try to get that sixth win and what would be bowl eligibility. They're not going to be – this isn't going to be another 10-win Syracuse squad for Dino Babers. No, I, I don't think so either. And it, it certainly doesn't help you look at their schedule. They have to play North Carolina on the road. They play Clemson on the road. They play Louisville on the road. They play Notre Dame on the road. They, I don't know what people at the league office, you know, who, who they got on the wrong side of there in terms of who was making the schedule, but that's rough. Very much so. So, yeah, I, I'm with you there. I certainly don't think it's another 10-win season. It'll be interesting to see what they can do and at least how competitive they are in those games because even if they don't get back to bowl eligibility uh, for a second straight year, I think these are extraordinary circumstances, obviously, and I think we could still learn a lot positive about this team moving forward. Can we say the same about the next team we're talking about, John, which is Duke? The Blue Devils finished last year 3-5. and five. They were another team that was 5-7 and seven overall. They were even worse offensively than Syracuse in terms of what they were able to do. Uh, 
they were slightly better defensively last year. And I think it's really interesting because they bring a lot more talent back on defense this year. And, you know, Duke could have some, you know, say as a spoiler at least, I think, this year, given that sort of situation. As well as the fact that they have a much easier schedule when you look at it than uh, we see for Syracuse. So... What are your initial thoughts about where the Blue Devils sit coming into 2020? You know, I think they're uh, an interesting team. Uh, you know, we're used to David Cutcliffe at least being able to field passable offenses, even with a lack of talent. That's, you know, been the position, been the side of the ball. He's always cut his teeth on. He's always been known as a as a quarterback whisperer, per se. And that was something they really didn't get a lot of production out of last season. They were... Uh, 114th overall in total offense last year, 110th in passing offense. So Quentin Harris, as good of a dual-threat quarterback as he had the potential to be, just never really developed as a passer as much as Cutcliffe hoped. So it'll be interesting to see whether Clemson transfer Chase Bryce, who you know we saw um, in a limited amount of time when um, Trevor Lawrence got hurt two years ago, knocked out of the game. We saw him lead Clemson to a victory. So I, you know, I think he could be the guy that really gives the boost to this Duke offense. He's, you know, unlikely to be another Daniel Jones for the Blue Devils, but if he can improve that Duke passing game, you know, from 110th in the nation to the top 75 even, then I think Duke's got a real shot at once again getting bowl eligible. So, you know, they've, um, you know, they got six starters back on defense. And uh, they should be, you know, roughly equivalent. They were a top 60 defense last year. If they can keep that and they can limit turnovers, I think that's a huge thing for this team, too. They were 120th in the nation at a negative 11 turnover margin last year. And that goes right into, you know, unsteady quarterback play really affecting the Blue Devils. So I, I really think this Duke team's got a shot to, to take a step forward if Chase Bryce can be the Chase Bryce we saw off the bench for Clemson for a full season at Duke. Yeah, I think that makes one of the most, that was perhaps one of the most intriguing transfers in in college football. Just because, you know, and coming into this year, his ability to potentially make a big difference within the same conference could be fun to watch. But I think you're right. I think the defense is going to give this team a chance in most of its games. Just because of that returning talent and, you know, you look at the defensive SP plus numbers in the preseason, they're a top 35 defense. And that's before you strip away all the teams that won't be playing. So this could be a top 20 defense this year easily. And I think that could make a huge difference in terms of, you know, where they end up sitting in the long run because their lone uh, non-conference games against Charlotte. So they get that opportunity against a conference USA team, and it pretty much gives them one win automatically, I think. I'd be surprised if the 49ers pull off that upset. But they also don't have to play Clemson in the regular season. Uh, they do have to open the year at Notre Dame on the road, but... You know, after that, they spend the rest of September at home into, you know, the first weekend of October when they're playing Virginia Tech there at home. And, you know, they don't go on the road again until mid-October. And so I think 
Duke can kind of get their feet solidly underneath them. Uh, it won't be easy to open the year 2-1, and one, but if they take advantage of home field at a place where it's not like they've been packing it to the rafters anyway, it could make, make a difference for them. Moving on to the last team that we'll be talking about in this segment, sitting there in, you know, the cellar. We had four teams, five teams, six teams. Six teams in the ACC that finished a perfectly middling 4-4 four and four last year. I ended up parsing this all out based on overall standings, head-to-head -head records and everything, and came up with the fact that Florida State threw the short end of the stick for this segment. So we had the whole situation with Mike Norvell earlier this summer with, you know, talking to his team about the Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on in the wake of George Floyd's death and all the subsequent uh, issues that have come to light. Breonna Taylor, we recently saw the issue in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm not going to get onto that rant right now, but basically the salient part of it is Norvell said that he spoke personally with all of his team. Marvin Wilson put him on blast, said, no, you did not. And you had, you know, sort of a, a, a coming together and, a, you know, a clarifying everything. Norvell, to his credit, came out and said, yes, I misspoke. Uh, I wasn't misquoted. I just totally misconstrued what happened. Uh, didn't put it in, in, in the most accurate of light and owned it. And it seems like, you know, that situation is in the rearview mirror for now, but is it actually? And how might that sort of off-season turmoil affect what happens this year in Tallahassee? Yeah, and I mean, on top of that, we recently saw some issues based on some players coming out and speaking uh, about not feeling like Florida State's safety protocols were really up to standard for the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, it's been a, a definitely a challenging offseason for Mike Norvell. He's already dealt with a couple major crises before even coaching a single game for the Seminoles. And this is a, a program that's been in a bit of turmoil ever since Jimbo Fisher, you know, from Jimbo Fisher's final season in Tallahassee and then the two years Willie Taggart's been there. It's been three really lackluster seasons in Tallahassee for a very impatient fan base. You know, we saw Taggart only get two seasons at Florida State. And, you know, whether or not we think that's fair, there, there were certainly some issues that really came to light. Taggart teams were, you know, one of the more undisciplined teams in the country during his two seasons there. But there was also a lot of roster issues left over from the Jimbo Fisher era. And, you know, one of the big losses Florida State's got to contend with this year is losing Cam Akers, who despite running behind that Florida State offensive line, still managed 1,100 yards on five yards per carry rushing. So who's going to be the guy? Is it going to be, you know, Deshaun Corbin, the transfer uh, from Texas A&M, uh, stepping in? Or who's going to be that guy that really takes the mantle from Cam Akers? Because that's a huge loss for them. They've got capable quarterbacks. We've seen James Blackman show the talent to be uh, a really good quarterback in the league. He's just got to get more consistent. Uh, and then, obviously, Louisville transfer Jordan Travis is also a guy that's got a lot of potential. So, you know, this is a, probably what's at least second year or third year in a row that Florida State's looked pretty good on paper. When you look at their roster, you look at, you know, 
the SP plus projections for this team. But man, it's kind of hard to get behind Florida State without seeing them actually do it right now. Because, you know, for three years in a row now, they've been a team that was right on the precipice of being a top 25 team in some metric. And, you know, are they actually going to be that team this year? Defensively, they should be in pretty good shape. Uh, but, you know, they were 90th in the country in total defense last year and they returned 83% of that production. You already mentioned Marvin Wilson. He's one of the better interior defensive linemen in the country. So, you know, Norvell's got uh, ring over Kenny Dillingham from Memphis with him to run the offense. You know, they should take steps on that side of the ball as well. If they can improve defensively, which, you know, based on Connolly's SP-plus projections, it looks like they should. Uh, but I, I just have a tough time going with the they should for Florida State because they should have been better in the last two seasons as well. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Florida State has always been an enigma like that. You know, they had that that renaissance under Fisher where they end up winning the final BCS title, breaking that SEC streak against Auburn. And then going back to the inaugural college football playoff where they, I'll admit being giddy about this, but they lost convincingly at the Rose Bowl to Oregon before Oregon got their asses handed to them by a third string quarterback. So I'll leave a little crow there as well. But, you know, Florida State is a proud program. They really are. And it, it, it really becomes interesting with everything that's happened around Norvell. They're not going to get rid of him after one year, but if we don't start seeing progress soon, they're just going to become a revolving door sort of program. I really feel, which is weird in a talent-rich part of the country, but they have this risk of sort of spiraling down that Nebraska sort of, you know, tumble, or even just down the road. Their rival in Coral Gables, who we'll be talking about soon enough. Uh, it's interesting in a talent-rich state like that how both of those programs have kind of fallen off the radar in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, the, what's interesting, too, is how different would we be looking at this Florida State program if they don't have a national title seven years ago? If they lose, and that, you know, it took a play with, what, less than 20 seconds on the clock for them to beat Auburn in that game. If that play doesn't happen, they lose. And this is a, a program we're talking about that hasn't won uh, a title in quite a long time. So, I mean, it, it, it's certainly – them and Miami are certainly on the same kind of wavelength there. Yeah, they would be without a title in the 21st century without that one. Uh, because before that, their last title was 99, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the second BCS. Um, yep. When they went three years in a row and only won one of them, they were kind of the Atlanta Braves of the late 90s BCS era. Ouch. I, I couldn't resist, John. I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to need a break to recover. Okay, let's do it. Well, we've gotten through our first five. Uh, I'm going to let John recover because that was rude as hell of me. Uh, you all get a quick stretch. Get yourself a refresher in the drink department and we'll be right back stay tuned
Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast. Now that we've recovered from everything after that last segment, everybody, we're going to be talking about the middle of the ACC pack now in this second segment. And we left off with Florida State uh, talking about how they've become sort of this fallen power. And I, I think that's a perfect way to seg into the next team we're going to be talking about. Another team that finished 4-4 four and four in ACC play and 6-7 and seven overall, despite a lustrous past. Talking about the Miami Hurricanes, everybody. This is a team that had a stellar off... Or a st- Yikes. This is a team that last year had a stellar defense that was completely betrayed by Dan Enos' inept offense. You hate to see it. You really do, because, you know, that was a defense that ranked among the best in the entire country. Gave up 310 yards a game, only 20 points a game, and the team still finished under 500. This is also a team that, despite bringing back only half of their defensive production this year, already ranks in the top 10 of Bill Connolly's preseason SP plus rankings on the defensive side of the ball. So failings have been on offense recently for this team, John. This year they have a new coordinator and more importantly, perhaps they have a new quarterback. They've gone down the transfer route before, but why do you think this might be different this year? Yeah, I mean, we've seen what De'Ara King can do in, you know, the AAC with Houston. We've seen how dynamic of a a player he can be. So I think there's a lot of optimism in Coral Gables this season for the Hurricanes because they seem to have finally figured out that position because that's been the biggest issue for Miami. The last year of Mark Rick's tenure there and the first year of Manny Diaz's tenure as the head coach has been unsteady quarterback play. They flip between several guys, whether it's Jaron Williams or Nikosi Perry or even, you know, they were hoping Kate Martell might be that guy. Uh, and obviously that didn't work out. But if you look at this team, even with you know Gregory Russo deciding to opt out, which is a huge loss, they added Quincy Roche from Temple as a transfer. Coming into that, they looked like they probably had the two best bookend defensive ends in the country. Uh, losing Russo is obviously uh, a tough. It's obviously tough, but bringing in Roche to will really fill that void nicely. You know, it'd been nice to have both of them, but you know, one is still better than most can boast. So, you know, I think this defense should once again, I mean, I think it's fair to call this probably a top 10 defense in the country coming into this year. If they can really take that step forward on offense, I mean, they were 120th in rushing offense last year, 98th overall. So, I mean, obviously they've had offensive line issues as well. But if you look, they've got four returning starters on the offensive line. Um Hopefully those guys can gel quickly for this team. Brevin Jordan's one of the top tight ends in the country, uh, and they've got some talented skill position guys to kind of add in there based on some really good uh, recruiting classes that Diaz has helped bring in to Miami. So I really like this Miami team even after losing Russo. I don't know. um, You know, when we were talking divisions months and months ago, I projected them to win the Coastal. Obviously that no longer matters. Uh, but I think the Hurricanes have a real shot. De'Aaron King can get in there and really establish himself. And obviously losing spring practice is it hurts, but when you've got a, a graduate transfer quarterback, you hope he can pick things up a little quicker than other young players might in the new system. So 
I like the Hurricanes this year, Zach. You know, I, I think that's fair. This is also, let's remember, a team that lost five of its six regular season games by a single score. You know, we've talked about that in previous podcasts where when you have that many close games, it can it, it, a lot of that flips on luck as much as anything. And we could very, you know, they win three of those six games, let's imagine. They rotate that around. And this is a nine-win team last year. They could easily have pulled that off without that much difficulty. Obviously, they kind of faded at the end of the year, losing their regular season finale by 10 against Duke and then falling to the Bulldogs of Louisiana Tech by 14 in their bowl game. But I, I think you're right. King really can't has the potential to jumpstart this offense. This is a defense that even losing Russo has all the parts to be right there in the thick of it again. They can make waves, and it's going to be really fun to see for sure. Another team that was right there in that middling middle of the pack, if you will, was Boston College. Again, another 4-4 team from last year that finished 6-7 and overall. Uh, you know, put up decent offensive numbers, was not nearly as good defensively as a team like the Hurricanes. But they bring a lot of, back, of, of talent back to that defense this year. Obviously, they're also switching head coaches with Steve Adazio out and Jeff Halfley coming in. Um, you know, they also lost Anthony Brown at quarterback who transferred to the Oregon Ducks where he won't be playing any football this fall. Um, we know that Phil Djokovic is back. It is going to be able to play immediately for Boston College. Does that fill the void well enough for this team? You know, it, quarterback play was a, a big minus for Boston College last year. Even when Anthony Brown was healthy, they weren't able to to do as much on there. And you know, I mean, the biggest loss is clearly AJ Dillon. You're talking about a three-time first-team All-ACC running back had over almost 1,700 yards rushing last year and help them be eighth in the country in, in rushing offense. So what do they do going forward? They should still have a, you know, a decent and a upper-class offensive line, uh, but is it going to be David Bailey, Travis Levy? Who's able to take that mantle for them? You know, David Bailey rushed for 844 yards last year on nearly six yards per carry, so theoretically he could definitely be that guy to step in. You know, they were – Fans and administration were kind of tired, I guess, of 6-6 of six and six, because that was about what you were going to get out of Adazio every single year uh, without much fluctuation. So it'll be interesting to see if they're able to to improve um, on that. You know, they've got to get better containing explosive plays defensively. They were 110th last season in uh, defensive explosiveness, so they've got to get better um, on that side of the ball. And that's the big question mark for Halfley in year one. You know, whether it's Dennis Grossel or whether it's Phil Jerkovich at quarterback, they should still be able to be a competent offense at least. But can that defense take that next step forward with 81% of their production coming back? Can they be better than one of them? I mean, they were one of the worst defenses in college football last year. I don't know that the talent's quite there yet for them to do that. Um, so I, I think it could be another challenging year in Chestnut Hill. I'm with you there. I, I really, I don't see a lot out of this Boston College team. 
And, you know, I think in terms of those 4-4 teams from last year, it could be a team that very well takes that step back more than others. I think they're definitely going to be a team that doesn't go nearly as far this year as that that absolute perfect middle of the field from last year. A team that lit up the conference despite the fact they finished only 7-6. and six. Uh, Talking about Mac Brown's North Carolina Tar Heels, obviously. <laughs> this was a team that took Clemson to the brink. You know, if not for perhaps the worst possible two-point conversion attempt call uh, could very well have defeated the Tigers and thrown a complete wrench into the ACC last year. Came close enough as it was, but, you know, this was also a team that outscored opponents by nearly 10 points a game and is top 20 in returning production this year, so... What do you think year two of Mac Brown's second act in Chapel Hill looks like, John? Well, I mean, we both got to eat a little bit of crow based on how good North Carolina was in year one under Mac Brown, because both of us talked about being very iffy at best, and that's probably putting it mildly about the higher about bringing Mac Brown for a second go in, in Chapel Hill. But credit to him, he's really um, taken on more of a kind of a CEO type role for North Carolina. He hired really good coordinators on both sides of the ball and that paid immediate dividends. And I think the biggest thing that happened for North Carolina immediately with Matt Brown was the fact that he got Sam Howell to flip from Florida State to come to Chapel Hill, and he was a revelation at quarterback. I mean, as a freshman quarterback last year, a true freshman quarterback, he threw 3,600 yards with 38 touchdowns, only seven interceptions. That's incredibly impressive numbers for anybody in college football at that position, more or less a guy who was a, a true freshman. So... I am I'm very high on the Tar Heels coming into this year. They have the 18th overall best returning production, not counting you know the changes due to the COVID sitouts and whatnot, but coming into to the fall. So you know they've got almost every body of note back offensively. You know Howell's back. They've got Michael Carter and Javante Williams back at running back, and you've got uh, a ton of talented receivers. A couple guys who went over a thousand yards last season at receiver for this team. So I think North Carolina's got a really strong chance at really pushing both Clemson and Notre Dame, who are probably the two trendy picks at the top of the of the conference this year. They've got a real shot. I mean, I think there's kind of a clear hierarchy there between Clemson and Notre Dame, and then either, you know, North Carolina kind of sitting there trying to fight ahead of them. So I really like the Tar Heels this year, Zach, and, uh, you know, I, I could not have been more wrong about Matt Brown coming to – Coming back to Chapel Hill. I'll eat that crow, definitely. Uh, we, you know, we talked about it as well in terms of how we felt about Herm Edwards at Arizona State. I'm even more impressed with what Mac Brown was able to do at North Carolina last year. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to write him off this time. I, I think North, North Carolina brings way too much talent back. Sam Howell was ridiculous last year. You're absolutely right about that. And I think one thing that also benefits North Carolina that we'd be remiss not to mention is the fact that we don't have divisions this year. So, you know, this is a team that at once could very well have benefited from playing in the Coastal rather than playing in, you know, just a 15-team 
top two teams take all sort of situation. But they also have a great schedule that lined up. You know, they, they get Notre Dame at home toward the end of the season. They don't play Clemson in the regular season. Uh, they also don't get a team like Louisville, who's been trendy. They get Virginia Tech at home. So they have a lot going in their favor here in terms of the way everything lines up for them. And uh, they're another team that plays Charlotte as their uh, one non-conference game. Uh, teams have obviously felt more comfortable with what the 49ers are doing with their COVID-19 protocols than what Liberty is. Uh, but I think that also works in North Carolina's favor. That gives them that early opportunity after Syracuse at home to really just reassess it and work through anything that they needed to after that game. So ultimately, I'm really impressed with North Carolina as well. Let's move on to uh, another team, another one of these teams in that 4-4 four and four swirl playing in the 500 world in ACC play last year. Let's turn to Wake Forest. Let's, let's finish up Tobacco Row here and look at the Demon Deacons. This was a team that went 8-5 and five overall last year, and, you know... They had a great enough season last year, but we have to ask whether or not that's sustainable. I, I personally think that given the way the schedule lines up and everything, getting to a fifth bowl game in, in a row is going to be tough for this team, John. Obviously, they lost Jamie Newman at quarterback when he transferred to Georgia. Um but, you know, beyond the quarterback situation, the offense itself was overall depleted. This was one of the the teams that there were only a couple of teams in the entire country that had less returning production on the offense than the Demon Deacons. So do you think that they can reload this season on that side of the ball, or is this going to be a rebuilding effort? You know, losing Jamie Newman's tough, but we did see in 2018 how much potential Sam Hartman had when he uh, kind of broke onto the scene as a true freshman starter before he broke his leg and missed the rest of the season. So I, I think there should be some optimism even at quarterback despite losing him. What really hurt was that, you know, wide receiver Sage Surratt opted out due to COVID concerns, and that joins the fact that they lost Kendall Hilton. Uh, from last season as well. So you lose your 2,000-yard receivers and you're really trying to to find um, production from your skilled positions. And, you know, and, and Surratt was factored into the fact that they only had 33% of their offensive production returning. So it takes a big dip now losing him. Uh, I just don't know that there's enough talent for Wake Forest this year. I really like what Dave Clawson has done. With the Demon Deacons, I just don't think they have enough talent on offense, and I don't think they're going. their defense is going to make up enough, despite having a guy like Carlos Basham at defensive end, who was an all-ACC selection last year. Um, so I, I think it's going to be a difficult season. I think I would probably be surprised if Wake, like you said, with their schedule and all, was able to break in and get six wins and bowl eligible. Yeah, it's going to be really tough for this team. I'm right there with you. And, I, you know, the defense is their one sort of saving grace there if anything does happen. Uh, whether or not that's enough of a saving grace really becomes a question. 
I think also interesting about this is this is one of those teams that did not find an 11th game on the schedule. Uh, they were scheduled to play Old Dominion in non-conference play, and they're still scrambling to figure out who they're going to play if indeed they can find somebody at this point out of conference. That becomes especially tough for a team like this because that one non-conference game could be the difference between getting bowl eligible or not. At the same time, we need to also mention the fact that we have fewer teams playing college football this fall than the number of bowl slots available from all the bowls that are currently on the schedule. So, I mean... Does four wins get you to bowl eligibility this year? Does five wins get you to bowl eligibility? It could very well work out that way if indeed they're going to try to fit a full slate in. So that sort of thing could work in Wake Forest's favor, but you're right. You know, they have a great defensive line. You mentioned Carlos Basham, but I think Tyler Williams there in the middle as well is pretty impressive. Uh, he offers them sort of that run-stuffing chance. But I, I don't think they can hold off the rest of the ACC enough, especially with not even having a non-conference game right now to, to get to that level. So, I, you know, I'm with you. I think that could be a step back very, very well. On the other hand, one team that has had... Some people looking at them with some, you know, uh, potential in their eye is Pitt. The Panthers were that last of the six teams that finished 4-4 four and four in ACC play last year. Won eight games. Uh, this was a team where the defense did its job, and despite the fact that they lose 40% of their production on the defensive side of the ball... They're still projected top 12 in defensive SP plus coming into this season. So I think the big thing comes down to their offense. This was an offense that was able to produce 380 yards a game, but only scored 21 points. It really comes down to, can you put points on the board pit? Do you think they can do it this year, John? Yeah, I mean, who really knows? I don't know if there's been a bigger enigma in college football in recent years than Pitt. Who really knows? This could be a team that goes 2-8 and eight this year, and one of their wins is over, you know, a Clemson or a Notre Dame or somebody like that. Um, because who actually knows what this team can do from week to week? They are um, an enigma in that sense. But, I mean, you're right. You hit it on the head. Defensively, uh, you know, they've got a lot of talent returning, but they did lose Jalen Twyman, uh, who chose to sit the season out due to COVID concerns. And that's a huge loss because this is a guy who had 10 and a half sacks last year and was 16th nationally in sacks per game. So that's a huge loss for that defense. But there's still a good bit of talent on that side of the ball. But it all to me comes down to can Kenny Pickett take that next step at quarterback? Because he threw for almost 3,100 yards last year, but he only had 13 touchdowns to nine interceptions. You would like to see that touchdown-to-interception ratio go much further in the touchdown favor. So it'll be interesting if they can do that offensively and if they can get more out of their running game. They were um, they only averaged 118 yards per game on the ground last season, so the offensive line's really got to open up some more holes to allow for, you know, A.J. Davis and those guys to really figure out um, that side for them. So, I, you know, 
It's Pitt might be the toughest team to project because they could go eight and two and it wouldn't shock me, and they could go two and eight and it wouldn't shock me because nothing surprises me when it comes to Pitt anymore. It's such a, a weird team to project in this conference. I'm right there with you. But, you know, I think you're right about Pickett. You mentioned that, that 13 to 9 ratio, but when you look at just ACC play last year, he had eight touchdowns to nine interceptions. It's just not going to cut it if they're, you know, the fact that they won eight games last year despite that, it's not even mediocre play from the quarterback position. That's abysmal when you get down to it. When you have a negative touchdown or a sub one touchdown to interception ratio like that in conference play, there's no way you should even be going four and four in conference so they really lucked out with that all last year and uh yeah i'm with you they're one of those teams that right now they project as one of the worst offenses in the country and one of the best defenses in the country so if they are able to get it done i think it really comes down to whether or not that that defense continues to hold the fort for them on that note I'm not going to give you any digs on this one, John. Let's just head to break quick. We're going to uh, come back when we, when we come back from this short break to talk about the leaders in the ACC pack. So you certainly won't want to miss this, everybody, because we'll be giving our breakdown on our predictions as well. So stay tuned. segment of this week's ACC preview on the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just finished talking about the middle of the road from the 2019 standings, which means now we're going to be talking about the four teams that led the ACC last year and the big newcomer on the block, Notre Dame. But given the way we've been sorting this out in terms of working forward from the bottom of the sketch of uh, the standings from last season that leaves us with Virginia Tech is the next team to talk about the Hokies went five and three in conference play last year they finished eight and five overall and they were uh, one win over Virginia away from playing for the ACC title last year so definitely a team that wasn't that far off for Justin Fuente uh, it's also a team that brings back a hell of a lot of talent, even uh, with some of the guys they've lost, uh, including cornerback Caleb Farley, who opted out of the 2020 season. Uh, obviously, losing a projected first-round pick like that leaves a huge hole in their secondary. But, you know, I think they got guys like Jermaine Waller, who could really step up as well at quarterback this season. And so... Uh, you know, I, I think Virginia Tech has a real chance to make hell for a lot of teams in the ACC this year, John. If not, you know, actually finish in those top two, they could make it absolutely miserable in the college football playoff race for some of these teams. 
Yeah, I mean, even after losing Farley, this is a defense that returns a lot of production, but we'd also be remiss if we didn't mention this is the first time since 1986 that Bud Foster won't be on the sidelines for Virginia Tech this year. So they've got to move forward without Foster as a defensive coordinator. Uh, they brought in Justin Hamilton. Obviously, Foster, you know, could be argued had slipped a little in the last few years for Virginia Tech, and it might have been time for him to move on. You know, obviously, college football is a drastically different game today than it was in 1986. So, but, you know, I, Justin is a guy who could be staring at a hot seat in the next couple of years, kind of dependent on how this season and next goes, because there's a lot of talent in Blacksburg. But, you know, I think he's lost a little bit of equity these last couple of years because eight and five is not really what they were looking for when they brought Fuente over from Memphis to replace Frank Beamer. They were hoping that this team was going to be consistently one of the best coastal division teams and competing for ACC titles and college football playoff birds going forward. Because this is, those are the expectations that Beamer laid in Blacksburg. So, you know, I, I agree with you. There's a lot of talent. I think Hendon Hooker really finally gave them that. Um, consistency at quarterback that they had really lacked the last couple of years under Fuente. So if he can, you know, take that next step as a junior this year that we saw last year, uh, they added Khalil Herbert, uh, a transfer from Kansas at running back, who had a really outstanding career there. So that should give their ground game a boost, a much needed boost as well. So I, I, I think I agree with you. I think this is a team that's probably going to be more relegated to spoiler than actually competing for the ACC. Uh, but there's enough talent on this team to to scare any of the real contenders in the ACC this year. Yeah, I, 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 I think we're on the same page there. We'll obviously see once we get to the end of this segment where we have all these teams ranked. But let's move on to the the fourth best team, if you will, in the ACC last year. Uh, Louisville finished with an identical record to Virginia Tech. They were five and three in conference. They were eight and five overall. Um, the thing was, is Vir- or Virginia Tech had a far better defense, uh, but Louisville had a, a, a much better offense, I think. And the fact that Louisville has so much returning back on both sides of the ball makes them. A, a really big threat, just like the Hokies, to play spoiler. I don't know if they actually have enough to, you know, make the difference in the ACC race and get into the championship game as a top two team, um, especially because of that defense. You know, they allowed 33 points a game. They, they, the defense is what single-handedly allowed Louisville to be outscored last season. And that's something they need to rectify in a big way, uh, especially against top 40 opponents. Because against them, they allowed 44 points a game on average in 2019. So shoring it up against good teams is going to be the biggest challenge for them, I think. Arguably the best coaching job in the country last year was what Scott Satterfield was able to do in Louisville, take a two-win team that everyone projected right at the bottom of the standings with Georgia Tech last season to eight wins, which I don't think anyone anticipated. Eight wins and a a bowl win over Mississippi State, which also I think surprised most pundits coming into uh, that Music City Bowl. So, you know, like you said, defensively is where it's got to start for Louisville. Obviously, Bobby Petrino didn't leave the cupboard bare, particularly on that side of the ball. We saw how bad they were. Um, you know, it's sad to say they actually improved defensively last season from where they were in 2018. 
Uh, but obviously a lot more improvement is needed if they want to take that next step from, you know, uh, a solid to decent, solid to good uh, ACC team to a legitimate great and contender in the ACC. There are probably a few recruiting classes away from that actually happening. There's enough talent still there at Louisville. Offensively, they should be just as good, if not better, than last year with Michael Cunningham back at quarterback and a really talented running back in J.D. on Hawkins, who had over 1,500 yards last year. Uh, Tutu Atwell's back at receiver. I mean, they've got they're loaded on offense this year. They should score a lot of points, but again, they're probably going to have to outscore most of their opponents. I think defensively they'll take a bit of a step forward, but they're still not good enough on that side of the ball, to, I think, to seriously challenge uh, for the upper echelon of the conference. But things are certainly trending in the right direction for Satterfield at Louisville. And the thing I like most about where Louisville sits coming into this season is they really get to warm up into their schedule. You know, they open with Western Kentucky as one of the few ACC teams that opens with their paycheck game. And then they're at home against Miami, which is another team that is going to be trying to make that stride. But this is really the litmus test, I think, for both those teams. And then Louisville heads to Pitt at the end of September. They're also on the road again against Virginia Tech. And they get all of this as sort of warm up, ramping up to that Notre Dame game on November or on October seventeenth, rather. I think that's going to be the big game on their schedule because they don't play Clemson in the regular season. Uh, you know, they play Virginia Tech at home. They don't have a lot of other tests there besides that Notre Dame game. So I think that, you know, the fact that they're able to ease into their season as most teams try to set up their Septembers really gives them a, an upper hand in that regard. That said, let's talk about the team that won the Coastal last year. Virginia Tech finished 6-2. and two. Uh, They weren't able to get to 10 wins. Uh, lost in their bowl game, finished nine and five overall. But you know this was a team that that made a hell of a lot of noise with Bryce Perkins at quarterback. Bryce isn't there in Charlottesville anymore. I I don't know about you, John, but I really see a regression back to the mean on offense for this team. And I think if anything happens at Virginia this year, it's going to be because the Cavaliers benefit from as much returning experience on defense as they have. Yeah, I mean, you talk about a coach who has a lot of positive equity going for him. It's Bronco Mendenhall, just from beating, finally breaking the streak against Virginia Tech, winning the, the Coastal Division, and playing in the New Year's Six Bowl game. So, I mean, that's good for a couple lackluster seasons in a row where everyone no one's really going to bring anything up about it so I, there's no real way after losing you know one of the better players in program history and Bryce Perkins I mean he was the engine that made that team go last year uh he was there he was everything for them on offense I mean he was the leading rusher and the leading passer whoever steps in at quarterback whether it's Brendan Armstrong or Mississippi State transfer Keaton Thompson whoever is that guy for Virginia this year they're not going to be able to produce like Bryce Perkins produced, and that's okay. No one's expecting them to do that. I do think they've got a shot at really progressing on defense, like you said, because they bring back you know, a ton of talent on that side of the ball. Charles Snowden and Joey Blunt are um, spectacular players at linebacker and safety, respectively, for the Cavaliers. But it all really comes down to what they're able to get out of their quarterback position. But I, there's little chance that this is a, 
an eight or nine win team again this year, they're probably going to slide. And I think they're probably still good enough to get bowl eligible, but it's definitely going to be a bit of a backslide for the Cavs this year. I, I think if we had a coastal division, we'd be seeing the cycle reset in terms of that seven different teams in seven years. I don't think we'd see a repeat champion this year by any means. Which brings us to the one team that didn't play in either of these divisions last year, John. Uh, this was obviously an interesting situation for the ACC in terms of inviting uh, associate member Notre Dame to play a full ACC schedule this year and be eligible for the ACC football title. The Fighting Irish went 5-0 and in their five ACC games last year, which is why we're talking about them second to last right now. They went 11-2 and overall. Uh, obviously, it was at once a great season in South Bend and nowhere near what fans expect from Brian Kelly's team in South Bend. Uh, that's just the, the stakes for Notre Dame football as it goes. Uh, this was a team that outscored opponents by 19 points a game last year. Uh, but And as well, you know, they fin they're 12th in SP Plus coming into the season, despite the fact that they're only 83rd overall in returning production. Honestly, I think a lot of that hangs on Ian Book being back at quarterback, but I don't know about you, but I think Notre Dame, too many people are high on Notre Dame this year. And let me just tell you why quickly. I think it's simply because of the fact that Notre Dame sucked in the red zone on defense. This was a team that allowed opponents to score on 96.7% of their trips inside the Fighting Irish 20. They ranked 129th out of 130 teams in red zone defense. And because of that, and the fact that they return, you know, in terms of their returning production, it's much lower on the defensive side of the ball than the offensive side of the ball. I'm skeptical that Notre Dame can actually come through and compete for the ACC title this year, John. I'm just going to throw that right out there. I think your concerns are legitimate. Uh, I, I think it's huge for the ACC optically to have Notre Dame this year because the big complaint the last few years of the ACC has been it's Clemson and everybody else. So in the very least, having a team like Notre Dame, who's preseason highly ranked, um, at least improves the optics. And it, it maybe bridges the gap for a year before maybe a North Carolina or a Louisville or Virginia Tech or somebody, or even Florida State, is really ready to start challenging Clemson again. So obviously, I think this addition is huge. I think there is going to be a ton on Ian Book this year. Uh, he was spectacular last year, though. You're talking about a guy who threw for 3,000 yards, 34 touchdowns, and only six interceptions. Helped Notre Dame have the fourth-best turnover margin in college football last year because he just didn't turn the football over. Um, your issues with them in the red zone are definitely something they've got to improve uh, on both sides of the ball, uh, really. But I, I don't know that – I think – there's still a pretty significant step between number one and number two and three in this conference. I still think Clemson is much better than the others, but I do like Notre Dame this year. I do think they've got um, enough talent on, on both sides of the ball to really be competitive. This should be, you know, a top 20 to 25 defense combining with an offense that could be top 15 
uh, top 10 to 15. So this team is extremely talented. Um, Ryan Kelly's really raised the bar in South Bend. I mean, we're talking starting to get into the point. The only thing lacking from his resume is a national championship. Uh, and, and I don't know that he's ever going to be able to do that at Notre Dame because this, this isn't the same Notre Dame program we've seen um, over the last hundred years of college football. So I like Notre Dame. I, I see where you're coming from. I still think they're going to be uh, extremely competitive, but you know we're going to talk about Clemson next. I still don't think that anyone's really touching the Tigers this year. Well, let's move on to that Clemson team because, you know, obviously they've been the class of the ACC for years now. And coming into this season, they're ranked just inside the top 100 in terms of returning production. They lose 40% of their offense uh, despite getting back both Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne in their backfield. This is a team that loses even more on their defense. Uh, but we've seen that story in recent years as well. Uh, this is a team that's been top 10 in recruiting each of the past three years. Um, obviously the class of the ACC in that regard. And, it, you know, it really comes down to is this a Clemson team that just retools, you know, just recharges rather than has to rebuild. Yeah, I think Dabo Sweeney's got this program to, to the point of being Alabama's equal in that regard that, you know, returning production matters for most teams. It doesn't matter as much for programs like that. Alabama's, the Clemson's, the Ohio State's, the Oklahoma's even, because they've just recruited and stockpiled talent at such a level that, okay, we lose this guy, but have you seen how good this guy's going to be? And I think a big way we're going to see that is at wide receiver this year, because not only has T. Higgins gone off to the NFL Justin Ross is out for the season, possibly even more than that. Uh, but, you know, you still got Amore Rodgers, a senior receiver, and a ton of talent behind him, and guys like sophomores Joseph Nada and Frank Ladson, who were very highly regarded recruits coming in to Clemson, who I think we're going to see take off this year. You know, Trevor Lawrence got up to a bit of a slow start last season. A lot of people were wondering what was wrong with him, and then, you know, kicked it into high gear and was spectacular over the second half of the season. Um, and then, you know, was really good in in the um, Fiesta Bowl against Ohio State as well. So this Clemson team is ridiculously talented. Once again, this is going to be one of the best offenses and one of the best defenses in the country. There's just so much talent at every level uh, for Clemson this year. They've got the best probably quarterback and running back duo in the country with Lawrence and ETN together again in the backfield. Even with Ross um, out for the year, there's enough talent at the skilled positions. You know, one question would be the offensive line, though. I mean, they got one returning starter up front on the offensive line, so if there's going to be a downfall for Clemson this year, it's probably going to be up front. But again, these are highly talented guys. I can't see anyone really competing with Clemson this year in the ACC. I think once again, they'll they'll run the table in ACC play and, and have another shot at uh, yet another national championship. Well, I think that's a perfect way to seg into how we think things are going to shake down in this conference this year, John. Obviously, they're, they're working from uh, uh, conference standings in terms of who are the top two teams that play in the ACC championship game. So, you know, let's go top to bottom. Who do you think are those two teams that play, and then how do you think it shakes out from there? I've got Clemson over Notre Dame. That's my top two. So, 
Uh, see, I like North Carolina squeaking ahead of Notre Dame. I have them being the Fighting Irish and and also finishing undefeated in conference play since they don't play uh, Clemson in the regular season. I could see that. So, you know, I have it Clemson and North Carolina, one and two. Clemson almost certainly is going to win the ACC again. I don't think anybody... I think people would be more surprised if they didn't than they did at this point. I think Notre Dame and Virginia Tech finish 8-2 and two in conference play. I think Miami is third or is fifth behind those top four. I think you see Florida State have a decent season this year, uh, possibly finish five or six wins in conference play. Right there with teams like Pitt and Virginia, Louisville. Um, and then, you know, you kind of got that bottom tier. I, I think NC State is probably the best of the rest. Duke is right there as well. I like what's happening at Georgia Tech. Um, and then I think the bottom three, I've got Boston College, Syracuse, and Wake Forest. Yeah, I, I've got Clemson, Notre Dame on the top, but I've got really Notre Dame and UNC kind of as a 2A, 2B kind of thing. I think either one of them teams could jump up uh, to take over. And I like Miami a lot, too. I've got them fourth this year, and it wouldn't stun me, uh, depending on how good De'Aaron King ends up being for them, if they jump up and take the number two spot in the ACC. I think them losing Gregory Russo kind of shuffled the deck for me, and I at last minute flipped them in North Carolina. So, But I think two through four are kind of right there on the same level. I've got Louisville actually finishing fifth. I think Satterfield's going to take another step forward for the Cardinal this year. Uh, Virginia Tech and Florida State in sixth and seventh. And then I think there's a decent drop-off after that. Um, I actually had Pitt coming in eighth. It just feels like when you don't know what to do with Pitt, put them in the middle. Uh, and then uh, I had Virginia and Duke at number nine and number ten. And then at the bottom, I had Syracuse 11th, Wake 12th, NC State actually sliding down to 13th, and then Boston College 14th, and I had Georgia Tech in the summer. So I think we are, we're pretty set on sort of tiers of teams yeah. that will be in the ACC this year. Obviously, we've got a little bit of shakeup in terms of where individual teams fall in that pecking order within their individual tiers. But I think that's interesting. I think it really does speak to the ACC as really a three-level conference. You know, you look at those, per, you know, top three, maybe top four if if Miami squeaks into there as well uh, at, at the top. And then you've kind of got that middle with those same teams that finished four and four last year kind of in that same swirl this year. Maybe Virginia dropping down a bit, Louisville and Virginia Tech dropping down perhaps. But uh, And then obviously that, that bottom five or six looks fairly similar. So. Yeah, I mean, it could be a really good year for the ACC. I, I think this is one of the more interesting years in terms of what they got in the standings. Obviously, adding Notre Dame helps, but the rise of, obviously, North Carolina and then Miami and Virginia Tech and Florida State, kind of the, the staples of the conference, also looking to be pretty competitive this year makes this a really interesting year for the ACC. Oh, undoubtedly. And I think as we mentioned in that first segment, the fact that you don't have – the Big Ten or the Pac-12 playing means the ACC could look even better in all of these polls and subsequently in the eyes of college football playoff voters because they only have, what is it at this point, 39 Power 5 teams that they could even look at as potential 
college football playoff participants. My one hope for the ACC is someone come within five touchdowns of Clemson in the championship game. I think that's a fair thing to ask. Let's cross our fingers for that, everybody. Well, on that note, so glad we finally got to have this ACC preview for you all. Next week, we'll be summing up the rest of the Power Five when we look at the SEC. We'll be heading to John's part of the world. And, uh, you know, until we get there, continue doing everything that we need to do to kick this all, everybody. Wear your masks. Stay apart from everybody else. You know, stay at home as much as possible, honestly, because that's really what's going to get us to the point where we can see football in all its splendor again. Until next week, when we conclude our preview season with the SEC, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you all, and we look forward to talking with you again next week.